0: The Debatable Podcast is available at debatablepodcast.tumblr.com and iTunes. On Twitter we are DebatablePod and I am Mr. Greggles. M-I-S-T-E-R G-R-E-G-G-L-E-S M I S T R G R E G G L E S. I also have another podcast called All the Pieces Matter that I co-host with Fernando Madrigal. All the Pieces Matter is a retrospective podcast on HBO's The Wire. We are located on iTunes as well and wirepod.tumblr.com On Twitter we are wire underscore podcast and Both the Debatable Podcast and All the Pieces Matter are available on actionagogo.com. So go check out those sites, give us feedback, send us questions and comments, and enjoy today's show. to kind of get a perspective on this because like you know it's always interesting to me you know we talked we talked about the thing which is widely regarded as you know one of the best horror movies ever made um and it's getting more and more like love in recent years and and you know that podcast that we did last year was just like it was it was um it kind of like perfectly distilled what I you know was thinking about the the movie, all the little elements of uh, John Carpenter's uh, nineteen eighty two film that that I really liked, and I was glad that you that you had um, similar feelings about it. I think we really bonded on that on that show.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So with this, I feel like it's interesting to see where John Carpenter's movie came from. In, in a way, and what it influenced directly afterwards. Yeah. So that's kind of where I wanted to go with this. I know this was supposed to come out on Halloween, but obviously work, like we just said, <laughs> gets in the way of things. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're all set up. You're ready to go. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So let's get right into just talking about uh, the thing from another world. Yeah, definitely. Let's do um, it. What did you know previously about this, this 1951 movie? Almost
1: nothing. I knew that it existed, um, and I knew that there were people I – actually, I think I only knew this because you had mentioned it, that there were people who were grouchy when the thing came out because it was a remake of a well-regarded horror film from the 50s. That was pretty much all I knew about it.
0: Yeah, I think it had a similar, um, if I remember correctly, it had a a similar reaction to the people that um, were saying the same thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like, there's all these movies that are... Widely regarded as being uh, influential and just you know that probably the best of those sci-fi movies, those those kind of drive-in movies too that came out in the um, in the fifties and sixties, the movies that kind of like had more to say than just being like sci-fi or horror they actually had something to say about their time period so whether that's invasion of the body snatchers with the kind of the communist threat or this movie with um you know maybe we'll get into it but a, a little more uh, interest in kind of post world war 2 and and maybe post hiroshima and kind of not trusting uh, science and, and, and uh, thinking of scientists as kind of uh, bad guys. Yeah. So there's parts of that. But yeah, no, I remember a lot of people saying the same thing about this. When you read about it, when you uh, uh, study it in, uh, in film schools, um, a lot of the uh, flack that the 1982 John Carpenter movie gets is because how do you, how do you remake Psycho? You know what I mean, right? right that's right. that's basically what it came from.
1: It, it, but and what's interesting to me about that that initial thought is that this is based on source material that the thing from another world was not entirely faithful to. So right. it's interesting that it gets it got and kind of got the same oh why are you remaking it thing, while while not really being the same thing exactly right. because the it's it's the thing John Carpenter's a thing draws a little more closely from the source material than. From another world, so it's it's interesting. That doesn't surprise me that it's gotten it. They got that flack because everyone always has a knee jerk reaction to remakes. Yeah, but um, but it's it's definitely a different situation than something where. Okay, oh, to be fair, Invasion of the Body Snatchers also ripped off something, but it sure. wasn't a direct adaptation, so it was a little different. Right,
0: exactly. And no, I think that, that that's interesting because I don't remember if we talked about it on on our thing podcast or whether it was something uh that came up in uh in more recent episodes, but that's the other thing. The the <laughs> I keep saying thing and it keeps coming back. No, but uh it, it is it's it's um I, are you okay? God bless you. <laughs> Monique is sneezing in the background. Uh, what was I talking about? How did I lose my train of thought? Um, Shit. Yeah, I don't, I'm sorry. About? I wasn't sure where you were
1: going. So I, don't, uh, I, don't to, I don't know how to cue you. You were just yes. saying
0: to you- Yes. No, I got it. I got it. Okay. I got, I got the line back. Um, but I find it interesting because um, we also mentioned, I thought, or maybe it was more recently um, on some other episodes, um, I get I kind of get why John Carpenter's film didn't do too well, because you're coming out during a time when when aliens are E.T. And they're happy and they're benevolent. And uh, also the level of gore in the thing is kind of a turnoff, especially at that time period. I think I don't I, I'm not sure. Well, you know, it's it's a different kind
1: of gore than what you got because that's coming out at the same time, uh, approximately, as stuff like you know the slasher films and maybe yeah. even Nightmare on Elm Street. I can't think of when that movie. Yeah, uh, with, a couple years the- later. Yeah. Okay, so we were kind of building into this this time of there being a fair amount of gore, but the thing has such, um, like I never can remember how to pronounce the name right. Grand Guignol. Style? Um, oh, I, you know, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't um, know how to pronounce that either. Yeah, I, I, I know, uh, Penny Dreadful taught me how to pronounce it and then I forgot because I suck. But yeah, um, yeah. but that kind of like like the grotesque gore. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. Purposefully grotesque, not just blood. Yeah. And not just intestines. There was like this, this design to right. the gore of that movie. So it was more impactful than just spraying blood on the wall. So I can right. see why people not expecting that would be a little turned off. And And, you know, quite frankly, you know, some movies are just a little ahead of their time. And I think the thing was, it was, it's, because you know what it is? It's not just, it's not just gory and intense, but it's also really quiet and thoughtful. and, And when you think about horror films, that's not a mix you get
0: all that often. Right. The thing, the thing that you're talking about, too, and I, I keep coming back to this when people say that it's it's overly gory. Like there are movies that are overly gory and they just are, you know, that, that like the special effects and and the uh, the deaths and the blood and all the uh, the viscera and everything that is the modus operandi of some movies. But when you're talking about something that is as an a violent infection and a violent like uh, invasion as uh, the the um, the alien is in the thing, having that level of grotesque violence is almost appropriate you know you're talking about something that's destroying humanity and it's not as simple as we cut away from this guy as he's making a grimacing look and all of a sudden boom you hey, he's the thing in the next scene you know you have to see that shit broken down you, you the, the humanity the the body the brain the viscera the blood all of that
1: yeah, when both, you know, both the John Carpenter's thing and The Thing From Another World both approach their subject matter into it, yeah. fr- from from the same idea, which is that you have isolated people being faced suddenly with something that doesn't make sense in any world they've ever been in. Right. And, you know, they go about how they approach those those topics a little differently, and The Thing does it by by contrasting the kind of bleakness of, of the, the snow and the isolation with this sudden grotesque horror right. of the the gore, whereas... You know, the Thing from Another World goes at it from a completely different direction, and I, I guess I can see people who were really into the Thing from Another World's more. Um, it was a little more otherworldly, unless you know, obviously because it was the fifties, it wasn't gory, but you know, yeah. it was it was this sense of sort of like the very alien. You know, right. that was sort of what the Thing from Another World was going from. So if that's what you wanted you weren't getting that from John Carpenter's thing and it was just a different take on trying to shock you.
0: Right. And you're dealing with, I mean, obviously let's get into it with the, the 1951, uh, the thing from another world, because with this, you know, uh, there, like you said that there are so many differences from that, that novella that, uh, kind of, uh, makes a through line to John Carpenter's movie, but with, the 1951 uh, uh, film. You're looking at certain differences that become kind of whether they were influential after the fact or it was hitting a zeitgeist at the time. I mean, you're dealing with humanoid type aliens. Um, there's a. Uh, it's very uh, a typical film. Uh, filmmaking dialogue uh, writing of the time—you got that fast B movie type dialogue. Um, it's it is an ensemble cast, but you're led by a strong male uh, 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 hero in many ways. Uh, it's uh, it is more uh, militaristic than um, than the 1982 film. I mean, the 1982 film has those elements, especially a post-Vietnam feeling to it. But you're more scientist, you're more researcher. Whereas this film, uh, you have kind of the uh, United States military um, uh, leading the charge, backed up by kind of the science group in uh, the North Pole.
1: Yeah, yeah. You get. Um, it, in fact, you had mentioned sort of a post World War II thing, which I think is interesting because we have post Vietnam and post World War right. II, and the way that the you know the the tone of things is is very different in those. In this, we get. That sort of aspect, even though they're in Alaska, I believe at the beginning in a right. foreign base, it has that feeling. That first scene has the feeling of sort of the you know military base elsewhere. Yeah. They're playing cards, they're goofing around. You know, this is a, a not a bad time to be a soldier in a foreign base because right. it's not it's not war anymore. It's and now words peace. Around. Right, right. Right. Exactly. So you get that first scene where you know that. In fact, that first scene is really interesting to contrast with the eighty-two film because the isolation starts immediately. In John Carpenter's film. And in this, we get this sort of like, oh, it's cold, it kind of sucks, right. but hey, you know, just everything is very,
0: right. very jovial at right. the opening of this movie. It's the connection to um, the humanity, connection to even the the lower continental 48 um, with this Anchorage, Alaska. It's almost like the idea of Alaska being a, a distant, cold place is where this movie starts. And then to make it more isolated, they have to go further to the North Pole. Yes. Yeah, They they start from sort of the... Slightly cold, and then—and
1: actually, you know what? I just realized that Alaska was not a state as of right. this making this movie, so it is sort of kind of a foreign base. But yeah, so you're—in this case, these soldiers are out of the United States. They're in right. a U.S. territory in the first place, and then they get bounced up even
0: further into isolation. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I think that what is really— it really jumps out at someone who even has a, a passing knowledge of sci-fi movies from this time period is that it's pretty classic. It's pretty, it's pretty much a classic uh, like a crashed flying saucer. Setup of a story. It's um, you know, it's something that you would expect. It's not really that surprising a, a setup. That's not saying that the 1982 film is any more surprising, but I think the tone and what it does with the story in the 1982 film is a little more unique. Um, even if you're using that as kind of revisionist science fiction, like if you're going to see 1982's uh, the the John Carpenter 1982 film, you're feeling like okay, I have a back background in this, so let me see where he jumps off from this point. But the 1951 film is is right in its heyday, so it feels like a um, w- what would be the demarcation line or the influence of everything that came afterwards. In fact, through and through, it is very much of that
1: time period to the point that if you described this movie without saying what it was, it would sound like a mystery science theater film. Yeah. You know, there's there the... The the difference between this and a mystery science theater nineteen fifties horror like the creeping terror or something is is really one of quality, not of one of of intent. It's a very similar movie in terms of what it goes about as a number of other nineteen fifties horror films. Yeah. It just happens to there's there's a there are some tonal differences and some formal differences to the style that that play it off really well. But when you think about it, like there's this plant based alien stomping around, right. And that, that could be any horror movie, yeah. any science fiction horror movie in the 50s.
0: Yeah, it, it doesn't feel really like it's um, – honestly, from its time period, it doesn't feel like it's something completely um, – uh, new um even though you have something that is quote unquote alien like i said earlier it's it's a humanoid it's it is actually an actor james arnes uh made up to be this monster uh he has a human form he's just a large uh man actually
1: yeah yeah he's he you know, he looks like someone from uh forbidden planet or yeah. something walking around um and you know doesn't get any lines typical of that, it's right. pretty much a physical performance, and he stomps in and out of scenes, and and <laughs> is, is that's pretty
0: much what the what the thing does throughout right. the entire movie. How did you like? Okay, let me let me ask you something because when I think about this movie, there is one and only one uh, scene, one episode, one one shot that is is just like burnt into my memory from this and that is that sudden shocking reveal of him in the doorway when they like he is right there when they expect to come upon him and they open this door and he is right there in your face yeah that was great that was you know those
1: there were moments like that that really sold The movie, and that was you know even though it's funny though, what's funny about that scene is on one hand the design of the alien is not particularly scary at this point, you know like it's it's a like I said I've seen that alien about thirty times at this point, so that doesn't really have much of an impact, but it's well handled, and that's kind of what I mean about the quality being the demarcation with this movie and Mm -hmm. other bad 50s science fiction. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know it's here's here's this goofy alien, but there's something about the build up to that scene, right? That that really works because they're hiding it, they're hiding it, and in fact. You know, in some ways that is similar to the John Carpenter movie in that you never know in a horror movie when they're going to reveal their monster. Yeah. You never know when you're going to get that shot. And uh, and bad horror movies just sort of fumble it. But good horror movies know when to drop the reveal. Yeah. And yeah, this yeah. was a good this was a good moment of getting that reveal pretty fairly early yeah. in the movie and doing it in a way that was like, ah I have to imagine that if you were watching that in the theater, you would have had a moment.
0: Well, that's you know? the thing. Like, you, Whenever I hear my mom or my dad talk about movies that scared the shit out of them in the 50s and 60s, um, I always have to take that with a grain of salt because I've seen a lot of those movies and they didn't freak me out as much. And I think it's because of that time period. It's the, the, the mindset. What you have seen, obviously. I mean, I've seen a lot worse things uh, even in, in movies and, and, and special effects. So, yeah, I'm probably... Uh, you know uh, what's the word Uh, kind of um, uh, desensitized to it but like even more so I mean you're seeing something that uh, I guess I guess my expectation was that this is going to be a science fiction movie I am going to see these these uh, points that have influenced much later films, the ones that I grew up on or the ones that I um, got my cinema language from. So this might be a little antiquated. It might be a little archaic. And the thing that's surprising to me is that that's, that shot could still give me that, that feeling of piss-your-pants terror that I'm sure my mother or my father did, they had when they saw it in the theater. It's so weird, though, but I mean, this this thing, when you when you talk, when you pitch this movie to someone, I don't think that, to, by today's standards, they would think that that would be a shocking movie, or have a shock in it.
1: Yeah, almost certainly not. I mean, we, we're used to not being scared by these movies. I mean, we have... Twenty years of of a comedy crew <laughs> desensitizing us to these yeah. kinds of movies, you know. Right. Be- before we go any further, Greg, I'm I'm curious if you know this because you know I've seen Howard Hawks listed as director uncredited right. on this movie, and you know I know that this is an era when the producer often had such a level of control that they were de facto directors in right. some cases. Do you know how much?
0: Uh, um, Howard Hawks was involved with the direction it, of this movie. It really is up for debate. Um I I got to tell you it was not till recently i'm i'm ashamed to say that i knew that uh howard hawks didn't direct this for the longest time this was a howard hawks movie whenever john carpenter talked about it it was a howard howard hawks movie whenever someone talked about the um the the cinema and the um the uh the directing language that was used in this movie it was always hawksian so whenever (laughs) someone talked about it it was always howard hawks it wasn't until i turned the DVD over uh, one time not long ago, and saw that Christian Nyby is listed as director. It's really up everything that I've read. It's up in the air how much um, Hawks was involved with it. Some um, actors were quoted many years later or in interviews saying that uh, Howard Hawks was on uh, the set and would direct some shots; other ones Nyby would uh, direct. Um, The other feeling that I get is that Nibie was, uh, you know, protege of Howard Hawks. He looked up to Howard Hawks, so almost everything that he strived for was Hawksian. So he says, of course, it's going to come off like a Howard Hawks movie because that's what I was aping or that's what I was learning. It's kind of like how um, a lot of people... I'm sorry, it, it, it uh, slips my mind, but the man that Kurosawa apprenticed under early in Kurosawa's career, he was accused of being very much this this director. And it's because Kurosawa was learning that, that film language, learning his directing style from that director. So, yeah, of course he's going to look like that director. So I'm not really as familiar with Christian Naibi. And in fact, I can't, I don't know uh, another movie that he directed, but... He- Oh, I,
1: actually I've done a little bit of I did some looking sure. and most of what he had done is is TV he did a handful of other movies but primarily he became a TV director gotcha. and this was his very first directing credit
0: it makes sense it makes sense if you're a, a neophyte director and you're in the company of someone who's as prolific as as Hawks even at this time that you would I mean this is a fucking man who made the big sleep okay this is a man <laughs> who kind of shaped. Uh, Hollywood um, in a very big way. You know, John Ford, Howard Hawks, these are big, big names. Howard Hawks is a big fucking uh, uh, shadow over this production. So, it, you know, it's qu- questionable how much input he had as a director. Uh, it's questionable how much input he had on the screenplay. I know Charles Lederer is on there and Ben Heck is uh, on there as uh, as writers. Both of them very, very... Um, uh, prolific writers in and of themselves, but Howard Hawks. I mean, it's like uh, you, you put uh, Quentin Tarantino presents on your film, and most <laughs> people would be like, "Well, that you know that felt very Tarantino esque or whatever." Well, here's the question: you know, how much is Hawks involved with it? I think it's still up to, for debate. I don't know. That's interesting to me. I, this actually puts it in the poltergeist realm, which I think is, which is interesting. <laughs> exactly. It's very similar. Very exactly. similar. But
1: okay. I was just curious because, you know, one thing that's kind of unconnected to the horror, but I, I wanted to point out because it was something that stuck out for me for this movie because it's actually maybe the biggest difference between this and the other two thing movies is that there's a very almost Altman style to the way dialogue yes, is shot in absolutely. this movie. There are these these wide shots with lots of actors and they're talking over each other oh, and yeah. you can't always catch all the dialogue and that is very uncommon yeah. for this era of filmmaking yeah. where, where you are used to films being very cleanly captured, right. um, and there were a lot of these, you know, talking over, in all the way through the movie, it was not an accent, it was clearly a stylistic choice right. through the film, right. um, and that really, that struck me, that was very, very
0: unexpected right. for me. I think, I think that that is the number one, like, uh, uh, dead-to-rights, Uh, point that people use that this is a Howard Hawks movie because that that gift for conversation and overlapping and even even in a in a scenario where he's not doing a lot of uh, um, uh, two camera setups I mean this is a one camera setup mostly type movie and most of his movies are but Having that type of rolling conversation, uh, jumping over each other, um, cutting people off and everything, I mean, you see that in The Big Sleep, you see that in Rio Bravo, you see that in all of uh, Hawks' movies, his major films, and I think that that's kind of like that typical Hawksian style. So when you have this, I mean, obviously, the other thing is about the, the real conversation is that um, I think personally, that it would come off less sophisticated to an audience of the time period. That um, this isn't uh, a cleanly scripted uh, movie with major stars in it. That it's not cleanly scripted. That it's not someone talks and then another person talks. That it feels rough. It feels dirty. It feels real. um, Like real conversation, how it overlaps and how it uh, comes to a a halt and, and this other person doesn't finish their sentence or doesn't finish their thought I think that that is probably the the number one thing when people say oh this is a Hawks movie that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. That was I hadn't
1: really thought about it as a because you know it's funny I came from this as Hawks as as producer and Nybee as director just because I had looked it up yeah. before I started watching the movie. Yeah, but yeah, that's a, that is a, a really good point. It's, so that inter-
0: was, it's interesting. you came from it from that because for, for me, I'm the exact opposite. Like whenever this movie has been talked about, it's always been Howard Howard Hawks. I don't think that it was until recently that I had even heard Nivea's or read Nivea's name on this. It's it's a it's a really you know it's a it's a curious movie to
1: me for, in a lot of ways because of that because you have a lot of things in this movie that you know for a movie that is viewed as in its own way sort of a at least a proto classic if not a classic yeah you know itself you have elements to this movie that you know you have like a director who's his first movie and he went on to do TV and you know maybe the most compelling performance of this movie is by an actor who did almost nothing after this, Margaret Sheridan. Right. You know, that it's another thing where I'm watching Margaret Sheridan as the, I can't think of what her character's name is offhand. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, a Nikki, Nikki, who's <laughs> sort of the love interest. And the whole time I'm watching this, I'm thinking, she has got to be a star in other things. Right. This She's phenomenal. Right. She's owning every scene. She's anchoring right. the movie for me. And I looked it up, and not only has she not been in much, but I guess apparently Howard Hawks had wanted her for earlier things, had sort of discovered her. Gotcha. And she ended up having a kid instead of doing a lot of movies. And when she came back, her heart wasn't in it quite Makes as sense. much Makes anymore. Sense. But um, but I find it interesting. There's all these elements to this movie. It's not a movie made up of – a lot of times classic movies are made up of people that you know go on to big things or were right. from big things before. This is sort of a weird slapdash of elements that almost never panned out ever again.
0: yeah. I can see that. And also the other part of that that element being I think that it's in that that weird, little limbo between classic acting style and what would become method acting style. Because only a few years later are you having, or even less than a few years later, are you having uh, Marlon Brando and the, uh, the actor's studio and all of these people that are trying to breathe life into realistic dialogue and realistic characters and everything. Realistic, uh, what is often considered New York acting. So yes. this movie, I mean, it, it's in this weird limbo where it is stilted. Those actors are still kind of stilted, but her, her performance—I um, can think of a couple other people in there that I like. I like the newsman. He's a little antiquated, but he too <laughs> is kind of like this um, this kind of rat-a-tat type dialogue type guy. And I—I um, I don't know. I think all of them pl- probably play pretty well uh, after the time that it came out i think it is ahead of its time in that in that sense because i can imagine how how b movie how unsophisticated it feels you know compared to something that might have come out in the mid 40s or whatever i i
1: completely agree it is it's a it's a it's a curious film it is. to me that which is you know but but I, um, and i, I guess I, I am curious greg because we never really said this i i get the impression that this is the case you, you're a fan of this movie right i mean you yeah. like this movie okay yeah, i like this movie yeah, so did I. I was just curious because I could see someone not not liking but but respecting the right. movie. Right.
0: Um but I but I actually enjoyed watching right. this movie. And I think that it does have some weak parts, but I think that it's it's prose and um it's dialogue and there are so many parts of this of the movie, so many aspects that are very um, well executed. That some of the l- lankier parts, or some of the parts that d- just didn't come together, kind of I don't know, not get erased, but they kind of fall by the wayside.
1: Yeah, I mean, and even the the things that don't quite line up. You know, you have you have the the definite horror aspects of this creature that can that can attack the world right. and might destroy everything, and and the and quite frankly, the really effective. Um, isolation feeling of the the ice block when they're going out, you know, to yes. like actually look at the ship. Yes. But at the same time, everyone is so damn jovial. Right. This entire film, you know, like the right. enti- no one's cool breaks entirely they have this exactly it goes to that post-war um you know post ww2 era thing of like these are soldiers who know how to
0: deal with stuff you know like they never really freak out exactly i never felt at any point in the movie like there is hopelessness like even when uh the the uh the circuit breaks and the oil supply for the heat goes out and they realize that you know they're breathing uh the condensation in the air and it's getting cold they don't really freak out they're like, OK, we need to get onto our new strategy. It's, it's a very it's a very strategy driven uh, movie, and it kind of puts a lot of eggs in the basket of trust the authority and the knowledge of the military men, which I think is, you know, definitely uh, post Vietnam. That's a much different atmosphere during this atmosphere post World War Two. There's a little more like, well, we beat the Nazis, you know, we dropped the bomb. So maybe, you know, the tr- trust. The, the military man a little more.
1: Did, did the anti-science take of this movie
0: where the bad guy is essentially a scientist, did that off-put you at all? It's very much... Like, I tell you, when I see this, I I don't know if I, I... No, I saw this definitely before Godzilla, but I see the similarities in Godzilla. Like, Godzilla has these themes of that, and uh, it's taken to an extreme... Uh, to, to an extreme point of how bad... Man, Man's science, man's uh, ability to, to do these things, the woulda, shoulda, coulda of, of, of science, how it can lead, lead to Godzilla. Well, in this scenario look at how much it's almost it's almost like everything else is expendable like there's the scene with the military orders echoing uh 1979's alien the the human the humanoid is not to be harmed or killed until Fogerty arrives uh, take all action to protect it and keep it alive all that message needed was crew expendable <laughs> and that's how i feel that's how i feel about dr carrington too he's very much like everything else um has to be forsaken our our um uh, our our ability to survive our ability to live has to take a back seat he only cares about kind of he really cares about this this alien discovery and the fortune and glory that he probably will get from it but yeah it doesn't paint science in a very good way it's very it's very godzilla like and and that's in that respect to me I have a point about Godzilla I want to make, but you just—I didn't think of this,
1: but Doctor Carrington is basically Ash from Alien. That's yeah, an influence that, you know he's basically playing Absolutely. Ash or the um Robert the, whatever the um Paul. the Ian Holm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's also an Aliens the the corporate stooge guy, but yes, you know oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. that, that kind Riser, of role right? of yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Reiser's character um, of sort of you know nudging everyone away while they do the the work of this broader idea. And, exactly. and what's interesting with this. Here, so you made the point about Godzilla, and you are talking about the original Godzilla, yes. I assume, mm-hmm. right? Okay, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that I I wasn't about to say something that was off what you were trying to mm-hmm. say. But what's interesting about Godzilla's take on science is that it its horror of science is sort of the the science the collective science of man being used for man's ends, yeah. right? Like it's not really anti science to me, right? I so much I as get, yeah, I get what you're yeah, saying. But whereas this is sort of like anti scientist. Yes. In some ways, even though it has elements of that Godzilla thing with the – like you said, with the Fogarty's orders to protect yeah. the humanoid, which which really plays into that as well. But in the meantime, you have this rogue scientist in Dr. Carrington um, basically manipulating everyone and trying to grow more aliens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, just, just to see what happens. That's the other thing. I mean like you have – like this movie more than anything I think influences – Alien, the 1979 film. Because that's that's kind of the aspect. I'm glad that we're kind of getting on this idea of the company man. Like, that's the same shadiness that we're seeing in Carrington. Carrington is willing to lie and kind of manipulate around the the, uh, the other people in the group just to kind of experiment or get to his, his own ends, you know, to, to achieve his own ends. I like this little section from from wikipedia where it says the film took full advantage of the national feelings of the time to help enhance the horror elements of the story i think this is very important the the film reflected a post hiroshima skepticism about science and the negative views of scientists who meddle with things better left alone in the end it is american servicemen and several sensible scientists so not completely anti-science but particularly the bad guy can be a scientist um American servicemen and several sensible scientists who win the day over the alien invader. So I think that that's kind of the interesting part that, you know, uh, the, the sensibility, the American sensibility at this time is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) <laughs> Don't fuck with it, um, you know. Especially after the fallout of seeing—I I mean, I mean that as a pun, also—but the fallout of 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 Hiroshima, the the atomic bomb. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a a very interesting dichotomy. Uh, some people would call it hypocrisy that there was still nuclear testing being done. They even talk about Bikini Island in this movie. They mention it. Um, with uh, nuclear testing still being done in the cold war era, era after we saw how horrible as a, as a as a world as a as a whole world culture we saw how horrible the atom bomb was yet we 're still doing hydrogen bomb testing on the islands uh, in parts of the united states uh, and, and a lot of that honestly wasn 't uh publicized you know that's still something that was kind of uh deep dark secret in government records and everything so in a weird way uh depending on the type of person you were probably the majority didn't know about this but if you were a skeptic or a conspiracy theorist of the time carrington really is the government in a weird way
1: you know what's interesting about the whole Carrington military thing is that – and I think this reflects the filmmaking atmosphere of that time where you get the feeling that Hawks and whoever else in the movie is skeptical of the military's use of science, which is where you sure. get Fogarty's messages from and the you know the, the entire sense of no one being allowed to make a decision. Right. But at the same time, you get sort of the we can't entirely badmouth the military aspect of Hollywood at that time and thus – Carrington is kind of painted, right. you know, we, we, we shunt it onto an individual scientist who's gone rogue,
0: mm-hmm. as exactly. opposed
1: to the idea of the system. Like, at no point in the movie does anyone call out the general right. as being a problem. Right. He, other than, you know, other than the than Fogarty's or whatever, Carrington is always sort of like, see, see, he's behind <laughs> yeah. me. Exactly. But no, at no point does anyone say... Why is our military saying not to kill this humanoid? They just sort of ignore the orders and move on. So there's sort of this authorial skepticism of the system, but the front and center skepticism is entirely on Carrington. Because you even see that in the ice ice field sequence where the military decides to use thermite bombs to melt the ice and effectively blow up the entire spaceship in the process. (laughs) Exactly. Which is sort of another, like, let's just blow it up military kind of jab. But they can't just come out and say that, so they sort of move on from that
0: point later. I also like that attitude of, uh, what is it? who is he, Captain Henry? Is he the main character? Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. That that really, you know, in any other circumstance, if you were a a, 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 a serviceman and you uh, denied to follow an order... That would not be good for you, but he seems yeah. to be in that in that perspective of, um, I'm on the front lines. I know what's going on. I'm just gonna disregard this order, and uh, you know because I know better. I know better than than Fogarty at this point. Uh, so let's ignore him. Um, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. So this shit is going to happen. Uh, you know, hopefully it'll turn out all right for us. If we're dead, fuck it. You know, Fogarty is going to have to find some dead bodies. But if we're alive and we have, uh, you know, uh, beat the bad guy, then, you know, oh, I'm sorry, slap me on the wrist, but at least I got the bad guy dead, you know.
1: You know, you know what's interesting
0: about that is that you know when you were
1: comparing this to john carpenter's take on it john carpenter puts in <coughs> as a center um kurt russell who's there's a very scruffy yeah. um you know sort of like the anti-hero of that age right yeah. like he kurt russell kind of embodies that sort of anti-hero of that yeah. age um yeah. In this, you know, uh, Captain Henry is very nearly a William Holden character. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, I can see that. like obviously they can't really like they don't have the money to be casting William Holden in this movie, but like he's that kind of like you know upstanding yet still kind of antihero character. Right. right. So it's it's they're both anchored by these kinds of you know caring but rule breaking types, but they're very much of their time. Right. So Henry's very like likable and jovial and um, charismatic, whereas. You know, John Carpenter took that character and made him sort of unlikable. No one's trusting him because Kurt Russell is is not very friendly. He's not mm-hmm. very right. very cuddly of a person. So everyone wants to like Captain Henry in this right. movie, and no one wants to like Kurt Russell's no. character in that movie because right. because he's just like shut
0: up. We're doing it my way. Exactly. No way at all. So exactly. I just think
1: it's interesting that they both have these anti heroes
0: centering them. It's but fa- they're very different takes on that character. It's it's also an idea of fascism, like leader. Who, who is the leader of this ensemble? <laughs> like in World War II and post-World War II, having a leader was something to respect and even um, to even um, like really aspire to. You want to be the leader. Um, but uh, that's a tr- traditional hero. But with Kurt Russell's character and being part of that uh, ensemble and being post-Vietnam, I think that a leader... Could be vilified. A leader could be someone who doesn't know the the best way. A leader should be something you're skeptic of. I mean Nixon. So in this scenario in that in that scenario of the 1982 film especially considering we have this idea of of the cold war communism not knowing where the threat is coming from um the idea of the shapeshifter so obviously it's not a a humanoid that you can see down the hallway and say that's the alien that's the bad guy but in case you know it could be your fellow man it could be your best friend it could be a dog you wouldn't know so in that scenario uh, how do you define a leader? Who is a leader in an, in, on, in an ensemble of people where you're already skeptical of them?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and you're right. The, the 51 thing is very behind the clear leader Yeah, idea. You have your captain in the military. Absolutely. He's charismatic. Um, I know we're probably moving on from this movie pretty soon, but one thing right. I want to give this movie credit for is one... So there's one big change. Well, there's two big changes, but, you know, the shape-shifting aspect, the the mimic aspect is gone from right. John Campbell's original story. But there's another aspect which is very different, which is that the thing that makes this thing scary <laughs> is that it can – it is a plant-based organism and it plants seeds that feed on blood. Yes. Basically. Right. And I want to just give credit because that's really brilliant. Like, yeah. that is a really cool science fiction yeah. idea. And it's not the John Campbell
0: idea for the thing. Right. But – Plant, plant, plant plants uh, almost not cannibals, but plants preying on human beings I like that it's it's, it's really interesting and, it, and another influence out into the world there you get
1: um, little shop of horrors yes from from this you know Absolutely. the the plant that feeds on blood. Um, alien plant that feeds on blood specifically Absolutely. but I but you gotta have credit you know there are adaptation ideas that work and adaptation ideas that are dumb this is an adaptation idea that's actually kind of neat and I yeah. think they deserve credit for that
0: there's um there's also the uh, you know when I when I proposed the idea to you about doing this podcast and doing these two films I think that the thing that popped into my head immediately was what's the theme of the of, of tackling these two films is, is influence um, where influence is coming from, where influence is going to, I mean obviously we're talking about Joseph Campbell's novella that really kind of kicks everything off and whether the 1951 film diverts or the 82 film gets more on, on the uh, on the money with uh, the the plot and uh, how things are executed, and how the 2011 film uh, kind of borrows from uh, that and the original novella. Like no matter where it diverts or stays on on track, uh, I think that there's these these elements that are in the 1951 film, like the alien melting out of the ice, um, the ki- killing the dogs and everything, the dogs being a part of this this thing, kind of like almost uh, sled dogs. You know how yeah. how people would think of, you know, in a cold climate having these sled dogs, but um, yeah, I like the idea that there is this intermingling even in this story, this intermingling with the blood and the plasma of humans and kind of, not necessarily miming humans but preying on humans and absorbing humans and and kind of uh, turning them into something else, taking them and making them a host it's very, it's very much you see with this movie, more of a clean through line to 1979 alien and and those those other movies that it influenced the 10 little indians alien type movies (laughs) yeah exactly yeah where whereas you know there's a there's an inner threat um this is a more you know this is an outer threat this is the more um you know where where you have a discernible enemy um, and that's just that's just like Alien. That's just like so many other very popular uh, sci-fi horrors, where where the other 1982 film that's that is a, a very it's a, it's not just an internal enemy, but it's an introspective movie in the way of where the where the horror comes, the internal versus external. What do you do when you don't? When there's no way of knowing who the enemy is.
1: Exactly. You know what is what's the end game of knowing that there's an enemy or deciding that there's an enemy, right. but never. Being able to know who the enemy is, exactly, and, which is which is the real innovation of John Carpenter's thing over over this movie. Although I guess that technically that's kind of in John Campbell's story. I, I have I want to talk John Campbell's story when we get
0: to the, the 2011 thing a little bit, but well, uh, well, I, I have let's talk about bridges because I feel like this is. You know, we we want to touch a little bit. We we touched already on 1982's the thing. Go check out that podcast if you haven't heard it yet, because I think that not only did we talk about our admiration for the for the filmmaking and and the actual craft of it, but um, I think there's a, a a lot of stuff that we talked about with the story there that I think kind of applies here. It's an interesting bridge. And you read you read uh, um, the uh, the novella, no?
1: Yes. I I, I I'll be honest and say that I skimmed it for okay. a
0: reason. But yes, I did I did go over it, yes. What what made you want to go skim it? Was it something in the fifty one film or the or the two thousand eleven film?
1: I, I got very interested. well when I was watching the twenty eleven film, I started getting interested with what came from what. You know, I, I knew that there was this fifty one film that had this plant based alien and there was John Carpenter's movie which yep. had the mimic alien and I wasn't sure where things came from right. and I,
0: I realized I wasn't what? gonna
1: be able to talk about this without having an idea of that. Sure. So
0: I think that in this interim I mean like obviously where we establish what the what the influence is what is the origin of some of these ideas and we kind of talk about um the the sociopolitical climate of the times. Um, uh, again, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, each one of those films comes out at a time and kind of applies to its sociopolitical agenda of the time. The, the 70s one, the, the 90s one, the 50s one, all of them apply to uh, the, the climate, the sociopolitical climate. So, whereas those ones have a very very specific and and discernible point. Um, sometimes the elements of the 1950s one, uh, the 1982 uh, thing, and the 2011 thing, um, really, it gets kind of murky. I think it's kind of e- easy to make the point about 1951 is the thing from another world. I think it's uh, pretty easy to make the point of not being able to trust your fellow man in the 1982, the thing. But the thing, 2011, which is just a prequel in many ways, um, is really using the admiration of another film as a jumping off point more than a climate. Yeah,
1: it absolutely is. I mean, you know, in fact, I, I think it's worth noting that the original John Campbell story was which was written in I think thirty eight. We're talking just pre World War Two. Right. At that point, which again is a really specific climate of Absolutely. fear. Absolutely. You know? Where and whereas 2011's film isn't rooted in in much of anything. Right. When it it, comes it, to it's
0: that. you know uh, to hear to hear the commentary on this. Um, I, I think that you're you're getting a, a film made by a lot of big fans of Carpenter, a big big fans of the 1982 The Thing, and uh, it really seems to be an impetus of how well Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder film, did because yeah. it did well financially, and they were like the studio said, "How about?" Uh, a sequel to the thing or you know in this case they kind of pushed it to be a prequel the producers came back and said well why don't we look at it from the perspective of the norwegian since it was simply just hinted at and i think that the impetus of this movie existing is kind of where we can start talking about the problems with this movie existing yes (laughs) The fact that it comes into existence because a another um, remake of a very beloved horror classic, Dawn of the Dead, um, and even, you know, kind of what Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder film did, 2004, is that when it came out? The Zack Snyder film? That sounds about right. Yeah, Yeah, something like that. Um, Kind of restarting, I would say, along with 28 Days Later, kind of restarting the zombie subgenre of horror movies. But... um, taking that as an impetus, you know, taking any sort of financial windfall of a of a movie being remade and saying, "Hey, let's revisit this other film franchise that let's be honest, did not do well financially when it came out, the 1982 film, but over the years has become such a cult standard that people, you know, talk about it in the same breath as any major uh science fiction classic. The fact that you use uh, the the financial windfall of another movie to get it made and on top of it this goes to a, another problem that we can talk about right now if you want because I think that this is the the umbrella topic is let's make a prequel so yeah yeah I know we've talked about this a couple times I'm sorry to cut you off Eric I know we no, co- go ahead. We, we, we talked about this a couple times um, in in relation to other films and everything but can we speak real quick about the problems with prequels? Um, I think that I could probably count on my hand or maybe even 3 of my fingers um, the best prequels I've ever seen.
1: Can, can I get your list before we go anywhere?
0: <laughs> it's hard it's hard. I was being I was exaggerating, but the only one that comes to mind is the are the the De Niro scenes from Godfather 2. Yeah. Which is, which is not a prequel because it's actually part of the original book. Right, right. So 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 much so much of this, you know, how it how it's relating the the, the Godfather two, how it was relating the uh, previous young Vito Corleone with what was happening with Michael Corleone and his family uh, years later. The the whole theme of family and how it kind of bridges the gap over uh, two generations and all that stuff. That stuff was so well executed, and it didn't do anything really other than filling in how some characters met, it didn't fill in plot that much. But the problem with so many prequels is that it fills in plot that's hinted about or talked about. I'm talking about the Star Wars prequels. I'm talking about pretty much any prequel that you bring up is filling in the gap. The the, the Bates Motel series, um, TV series, it is um, in many ways uh, trying to do an update of the story, but everything that has happened up to Psycho in 19 19- is being used as that that atmosphere and that plot line for that tv series so here's the problem with prequels and and if you disagree or you want to elaborate on this please do but for me it seems like you're destroying the imagination of these events that were talked about and hinted at that really enriched the original viewing experience of that movie Yes,
1: I, I agree with you. The the, the the problem with prequels... Okay, I'm going to name one prequel that I like, and it's not even a movie, and it's weird. But, okay, so I'm a big fan of the Spartacus TV series. Sure. Um, like a giant fan. Don't get me started. But, okay. you know, the, the... And just a brief background on this. They had a first season, and then the, the lead gu- um, actor got, came down with cancer. He was right. diagnosed with cancer. He had lymphoma. And in an attempt to give him time to recover... They decided that they would do this prequel series, which seemed like a bad idea. But what they did with the prequel series in that Gods of the Arena was not attempt to fill in gaps of what we already like right. what we had been hinted at, right. but to tell an entirely different story that preceded things and thus informed things sure. in the story that we had seen. But was not an attempt to give us the backstory of Spartacus to that point or right. give us the specific backstory of that. It was. Literally just a story that was set before right. what was going on. Right. And thus, Gods of the Arena really worked. Shockingly, even though it dealt with some of the same characters' mm-hmm. backstories that we knew, really worked. Whereas right. most prequels, the Star Wars prequels, this, yeah. um, that, like you said, Bates Motel, their attempt is to flesh out the backstory. which yes. is Which is basically saying... Let us give you the appendix of Lord of the Rings in a movie form. I'm sorry. I guess I just mentioned – I guess that's The Hobbit. Um, you know, and and it's just – it's a disaster. It never, it never works because we already know it's going to happen, which means that you need to tell us a story that is compelling as a story that has nothing it's, to do
0: with what we know is going to happen. It's absolutely difficult because, like, the biggest um, criticisms I have – of this type of storytelling is that I don't need to have the like the, the problems with the TV series Lost that I do have is these elements of revelation through just connecting the dots on a little thing like right. like Jack's tattoos or how <laughs> or how this how this trinket got here or whatever sometimes that kind of uh cliffhangery serialized um uh storytelling can be done to effective ways. I think Lost did it in many effective ways. But when I'm trying to, in the thing, 2011, when I'm trying to find out, like, am I tuning in to find out how the axe got there in the wall? Am I tuning in to find out how the burnt thing uh, that was still smoking got outside the the camping structure? Uh, am I tuning in to find out how that guy in the chair ended up dead with his his uh, his um, vein slid open? No. Why would I be tuning in to find out how that bullshit happened in the first place? Like, so much of the fear and the the unknown, I mean, so much of horror is the unknown. And the thing perfectly captured every little element of, of story that we needed from the Norwegian camp. Why did we have to flesh that out? In fact... By attempting to flesh it out,
1: we got a lot of scenes, and this is the problem with prequels, where not only do we not need to know that information in detail, but the attempt to make that information presented to us doesn't work. The axe, you brought up the axe, which is a great example, where, you know, what Joel Edgerton's character chops something with an axe yeah. and then it gets covered in the thing's blood, and there is this excruciatingly long postscript scene in that where they're like. He goes to reach for it and she goes, no, don't touch it. <laughs> exactly, leave it there. Oh my God, it's like, are you serious? Like, yeah. That is how the axe got there. Right. And, like, you know, it's just that, in an attempt to make us know that detail, you have now made me
0: bored with that <laughs> detail. I don't give a shit about exactly. that axe Exactly. Exactly. So so that's what I feel like when you go back and rewatch something, having the prequel information in it, it takes that specialness out of it. Honestly, though I I love Lost, I don't really like knowing how this trinket got here and it doesn't really um, it doesn't really help or flesh out or, or improve. a a rewatch to me because really you know the 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 questions or the exploration of storytelling that Lost could have devoted its time to or the Star Wars prequels if they had to exist could have devoted their time to um could have been more interesting. I always find that it's that it's uh, a much better idea, storytelling-wise, to create a companion piece, to create something that might exist in the same universe, might maybe even exist with a similar character or the same uh, character or a background character or whatever that enriches what you saw in the first place. The problem is that so often you get kind of just filling in plot filling in gaps i don't need to have a revisionist history on midichlorians i don't need to have all of these i don't have to have like all the gaps filled in with how uh they uh uh got back to the island from a certain time period though a lot of people really like that i think that a lot of it is um in most prequels is spinning
1: its wheels You know, the the great horror mystery of the American past is Croatoan, is the Roanoke colony, right? Right. I have never heard an explanation. A fantasy... You know, movies love and TV shows and books love to reach back and try to give an explanation to the Croatoan thing on the tree. None of them are as interesting as not knowing what Croatoan means. Yeah. Like, that is terrifying in and of itself. As soon as you give an explanation, it's not terrifying anymore. And the 2011 thing... Is taking what John Carpenter did, which was essentially the Croatoan moment of the movie, right, and explaining exactly why someone wrote Croatoan on a
0: tree? Yeah, yeah,
1: and, yeah. And th- at that point, it's like, well, okay, well, I guess that explanation worked, you know, exactly. Whatever. And, exactly. and so, you, you, there's no winning. There, there's no way that this movie can win. I mean, I think we should just note that at the beginning because there are good yeah. things about this movie, and at some point, I will mention good things about this movie. But it sets itself up. As right. and
0: this is Eric Heisserer. How do you? Pronounce <laughs> yeah, his that's name? a good question, man. Matthias Heinen, van Heiningen, I would say. Yes, Matthias van Heiningen is the director, and Eric Heisserer. Uh, yeah, Hesterer, Heisserer. Heisserer. Yeah. Is, yeah, Heisserer is the is the
1: writer, and right. Heisserer has is on record as saying that he treated this as like a crime scene investigation. <laughs> yeah, of, right. Of the movie, and you know, I. And one hand, I can't blame him. You know, you find an angle as a writer, right? Like you get you get drafted into a movie. And yeah. you try to find your angle, and he his angle was, let's treat this as a forensic investigation of what happened and give those details right. I think that was wrong headed. I respect his attempt, but in the end, what that led to was, as we
0: said, sort of a over explanation of details that are no longer interesting right i um, think that I think that what's charming right out the gate i mean, there are some positives to this that I will at least give them and and not in a not in a check it off the list kind of way but when we approach this thing if it was just a cash grab I mean 100% a cash grab I would hate it if it wasn't directed and made by filmmakers and producers um, who are also filmmakers in, in their own right. I, I didn't mean to undercut producers, <laughs> but filmmakers all altogether that weren't fans of the original material of, of the 1982 film that it's so using as a, as a jumping off point. Then it would be uh, absolutely 100% worthless. But I think there is something charming that they used. You know the schematics and the design and the sizing of the Norwegian camp from from Outpost31.com, which is a, a fan site. <laughs> I think that it's wonderful that they kind of tried to. Let, let's be honest. Egerton did get cast because he looks like Kurt Russell. Yeah, he had absolutely. to. Absolutely, he had to. Um, the elements of the pop music, you know, superstition, Stevie Wonder was in the 1982 film. You have, who can it be now by, uh, men at work and this one. It's trying, it's trying, there's so many elements where it's trying to kind of use it. Well, you know, there's, there's two failure modes for a remake
1: slash prequel slash sequel, whatever, you know, they yeah. all kind of fall into the same gap, but there's two failure modes. One is what you said, the cash grab. Right. Which is the which kind of falls under not giving enough of a shit right. about the source material, but there's the other side, which is
0: giving too much of a shit. <laughs> yeah Be, yeah where you're where you're you're so like into the the detail like to the point of pedantic kind of like minut uh, uh, minutia.
1: Yeah. yeah, like you need to just stop being a fan for a while and be willing to f- to flip the bird at the source material. Yeah. You know, there have yeah, to be yeah. times when you're willing to do that. And this was a movie that was unwilling to flip the bird at John Carpenter's thing. And That's the true. only way you succeed is by occasionally
0: doing that. That's true. That's true. I think and- the biggest problem with this movie too, um, besides it being a prequel, is that it's it's cons- its comparisons really is to Aliens. Yeah. To, to the Alien franchise. Um, it, it, there is no way you could watch this movie and not see almost... Where, where, it, where it retreads the same paranoia beats of the thing 1982, it also retreads the same kind of uh, ensemble and character revelations of Ripley in Alien and the Alien franchise. This, Greg, I
1: have a question for you about this. Since we're getting into the alien thing, we're bringing up um, Kate Lloyd, who's Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character. Yeah. You indicated on Twitter that 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 a like I and I don't I wasn't sure what you were going with because you made this joke a couple of times about there sort of being a female lead in the middle of this movie, like it might be a problem. And I know that you don't mean that because
0: there's a female lead. So I'm right.
1: curious. You were making jokes, and I just I'm, I'm curious as to what you were getting at with this that complaint.
0: Is, this is the cornerstone of my problem with this. And I swear to God, I think that some people tune out and think automatically that I'm, I'm being a misogynist. And I it really is more more complicated than that. When you take a movie and um, maybe this, this is a complication of knowing where Hollywood movies, uh, what Hollywood movies do with women. And it's horrible that Hollywood movies do this with women. And you could only hope that there are filmmakers and storytellers uh, especially nowadays that do a lot better than they did in the 50s in the 80s so there is something great about Kate Lloyd in this movie the fact that they retread it and almost make her uh, beat for beat uh, uh, Ripley from Alien 1979 is the problem. You got the reveal of the nemesis alien, rubric of the suspense being bit built and the reveal of who the alien is, the thriller aspects, and to her, really kind of the, the neophyte who is scared but then takes a leadership role. It's... Almost beat for beat if you look at the alien uh, franchise, especially the first and the second film I mean if they make if they ever made a sequel to the thing 2011 where Kate is the main character, she would be leading a bunch of uh, uh, marines to try to find. <laughs> uh the 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 thing you know at the other camp or whatever i can't even imagine what what the sequel would be but here's my problem this is this is the idea of the of the misogyny okay the misogyny is is ingrained in in the hollywood system even though she had such a great role what's the name of the woman from the thing uh, from another world uh, Nikki. Nikki. Uh, the the actress, do you know the actress's name? Margaret no. Sheridan. Mer- Margaret Sheridan. Even though Margaret Sheridan turned in a great performance, did that movie have to have her have a romantic relationship with Captain Henry?
1: No, not at all.
0: Yeah, so it's almost like uh, in the in the pre-Ripley era that women had to serve a purpose to the male identity or the hero identity, whether that is um, being the damsel in distress or being the woman that is his wife or girlfriend or love interest. In the post-Ripley world, it's... So fucked up that we don't have more Ripley's, that we don't have more Buffy's, that we don't have more independent women that aren't defined by their relation to men. But Kate, though she is so Ripley esque, there's another element to this that I kind of resent. And it is the no man an island aspect that um that carpenter and i i know that russell had had was agreeing with him on this when they were developing the story of of the thing 1982 there's something really interesting about this group of men in this camp so if you have women being used as love interests in hollywood films and and often nothing more would not equals at the very least not equals um where does your hero come out of of an un- ensemble of men? You have something like a camp of men not knowing who they can trust. This is this is male identity. This is heroicism. Uh, generally you would consider man the strong the strong male archetypes of these characters of these of these stories, sorry. The strong male archetypes of these stories like a Captain Henry to be the leader that comes out of the um the ensemble that that rises to the top in in 1982's case in the 1982 films case, of course, McCready becomes the the main character. Not just because it's played by Kurt Russell, but because he has these um, personality traits that make him a good leader. He is strategic. He's uh he's got perseverance and survival instincts. He's got um uh wit and he's got his his um he's got a, a, a brain on him. So where that 1982 film is saying okay the the phrase goes no man is an island well what if there was what if macready was an island what if it's someone that is not held down by his past his country his patriotism his love interest that all of these men are brought together by not being connected to anything and in a way they they make up this this idea of 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 giving the finger to the no man is an island thing, so yes, it is a misogynistic idea of how it's it's created. But I think that there's an interesting thing that the 1982 thing is doing that the the film the thing is doing to breaking down and devolving masculine strength, the strong male hero to nothing, where really McCready is is bubbling to the surface, but. It isn't because of anything other than than uh, a personality and a and a brain than um, what makes him a hero. You know, a general thing of a strong man. What a Captain Henry or a Superman would be. Does any of that make sense? Am I? Am I? No. It does. No. So I'm. I. So I have a question then for you based right. on this. So if if
1: this movie had done something like Neil, Mar- Neil Marshall's The Descent. And made this yes. a primarily female cast. Would right. that have been would that have changed your view of how you're seeing yeah. the way this movie approached it?
0: Yeah. The the problem is that, you know, the the baggage that it brings is one side, but yes, if it was less about the the gender specificity specific, specificity Where can't even say that word to the point that it is, it's transcending that it already has enough baggage with its prequel, it has enough baggage of it being Ripley. If she was playing, if she wasn't the token in this group of men, it would be a lot easier to not think of it in relation to Alien. So, so
1: what they do in this movie is basically import Mary Elizabeth Winstead to be the prototypical last girl absolutely and whereas if you got something like the descent where it's a, effectively an all female or mostly female cast yeah. it's not the same thing anymore in fact that would be a very interesting inversion of the masculinity of John Carpenter's right. thing right. to to see a a, a you know a, a
0: entire a research staff that is primarily populated not by men absolutely and it would also do a great job of Kind of see the problem is that they they painted themselves into a corner by doing this prequel. They already said this is the story we're gonna take uh, that we're gonna tell, and we already know for the most part what the Norwegian camp was made up of. We saw um, footage video footage in uh, the 1982 film, and we can kind of discern who made up this Norwegian camp. Um, it just it doesn't distance itself as much because we we know that it has to be majority men unfortunately yeah. we know that it's going to be if it if it is trying to have a strong woman which I'm all for, it has to do something different it should have it should have died on the page by being a prequel as soon as it was uh, pitched to be a prequel they they made a mistake in my opinion because not only are you. Painting yourself into a corner with the story you're going to tell, you're painting your co- yourself into the corner with the type of characters you're going to have. A lot of these are not only are they retreading the story, they're retreading the same kind of character types that we had from the thing and and yeah. from Alien. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's not a lot of original that they leave themselves in this. The,
1: in fact, the you know there are orig- there are awesomely original ideas under the surface, but on the surface, their most quote unquote original idea beyond. Um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is that the the Kurt Russell character turns out to be the alien at the end of the movie yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's about as close as this movie gets character wise right. to being to being original and unfortunately that's just not enough because because that was the only choice they decided they had, it was pretty obvious by that
0: point. Yeah. That and I mean, it does sprinkle in some things. I don't know exactly if this was talked about in... I think that there was always the outside perspective of what the thing was, but I think it was a, a little better fleshed out in the thing 2011, this idea, this like mission statement that the infected and the absorbed, the victim of uh of being mimed and absorbed by the thing is still a backseat passenger in the plane being piloted by the thing um i i think about the the woman who uh, kind of is uh you know um manipulating Kate into, like, that back room and uh, and turns into, you know, uh, reveals herself. But as this woman is being kind of broken apart and the thing, you know, tentacles and the the teeth are coming out of her midsection, that this woman is writhing in pain in the back, uh, you know, basically helpless to do anything about this. That was a really great
1: aspect because if, if John Carpenter's The Thing has a weakness, it is that it may go too far in the direction of not explaining what the hell right. the thing's process is. Right. You know, you never really get a great sense in John Carpenter's film of exactly what the thing is doing, yeah. how it's mimicking people, whatever. You can kind of infer most of that, but it goes out of its way to not describe much right. of that information.
0: Well, most of it is discerned from your your, your scientist exposition. Right, that's
1: that's the, about the information we get is is the uh, Quaker Oats guy giving <laughs> us giving us the uh, the computer simulation sure. of what's going on. Whereas this does a much better idea a job of giving us a sense of what the thing does psychologically, right, to the people. Um, and that's one of the things that this movie does really well. The other thing that this movie does well, I will say, this is I, I really want to give Eric Heisserer a lot of credit for this because. This is a really hard job, and the what is the best scene in the thing? It's the blood test scene. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I'm just assuming everyone agrees with me sure, because yeah, yeah. you're wrong. They're, not.
0: they're all raising their hands right
1: now. Yeah, so the blood test scene is, is brilliant, but how do you get a scene of them trying to figure out who is the thing and who is not without right. basically just repeating the exact same idea? Right. And the tooth-filling
0: idea is fucking brilliant. It's pretty. You know what? It's pretty good, but you don't think that it's half baked. You don't think that it's not okay. The blood test scene is um, airtight. I feel like the titanium plates and the and the metals in the teeth, the filling, the teeth filling uh, scene, especially, not
1: necessarily airtight. No, I think it is. No, I think it's a great idea, and it's set up so well because. You get an idea that the thing can't replicate non-organic matter, right. which is awesome, and you get that set up by the fillings being left right. behind, right. and then the thing is you figure most people have fillings, you okay. know, most of us have fillings sure. in our mouth, and and so it's a really great idea of how do you check for inorganic matter, right. you know, I, I I don't know, I really love that idea. I thought that it's a no-win scenario for a writer to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think and, that
0: it is the best, like the best second. Uh, option that you could do
1: right because the only other option is any aspect of the thing will react as if it's protecting itself, which is something from John Campbell's story. Right, by the way, that is straight out of the original story. Right, the parts um, versus
0: the whole. Right.
1: Yes, exactly. But but I got to give credit to the writer for finding an idea that that made sense and and the thing was you're right it is a little half-baked but that's all she has at that moment
0: yeah and i i I, you know what i i have warmed to it i've seen the movie like especially just preparing for this i think i've watched it uh three times i've watched it two times uh by itself uh and and one with the commentary but i think that it's it's growing on me i do like that it is an incredibly tense scene. It doesn't necessarily get to the same tension of, of the blood test scene, but I think that, you know, y- expecting sudden sh- shock scares, or jump scares, rather, um, from this movie, you expect whenever she shines a-, a light into someone's mouth that all of a sudden they're just going to, like, blow open their face and the thing is just going to, like, grab her hand or whatever. Well, because, you know, the-, the blood test scene, you can make a
1: pretty good argument that the blood test scene is the most perfect scene of horror in all of film. I mean, you could really make that case, and I'm sure that someone would bring their own ideas and it would be a great debate, but that is up there. It is. With the most perfect scenes in horror. So you're you're basically going up against the absolute tip-top. Yeah. But they did a good job of, because everyone else is going, what the hell kind of idea is this? Fillings, that's your... That's your idea. Yeah, yeah. So there's a desperation to that scene that is different than the
0: desperation of the blood yeah, test scene that okay. I that I like. Okay. You're giving me the hard sell, and I think I'm buying it. Man. I kind of <laughs> like it.
1: So there are ideas like that that I like. You know what else I like about this movie, and and I really want to give her credit for this. They don't only pull from John Carpenter's movie and the original movie, but they also pull from the Thing from Another World, and we get the ice block.
0: Yeah. Scene. Yeah. Yeah. You know that
1: ice block thing is straight Thing from Another World. Yeah. Absolutely. And and thing breaking out of it, and the uh-huh. the shot of the desiccated ice block, yeah, all thing from another world, and I and in fact not only just that, but the character of um, is it is it Halverson who the the main do- the main doctor who's kind of the right. dick, Yeah, yeah. He even has facial hair like Carrington, yeah. From The Thing from Another World. So there are some really cool it. callbacks to The Thing from Another World in this movie.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you, man, like, you know, I didn't even know this. I didn't really, I think maybe I might have heard it, but I never, like, filed this away in my head. When we were talking about the 1982 film and Rob Bottin's uh, effects work on it, I did not know that he had probably around a year or more to perfect the effects on that movie. So, yeah so he had that much time to kind of like to start and and, uh, and develop a, a, a kind of a drawing and then you know trash ideas this idea of creating you know the most important element that most people forget is thrashing you know being able to create criticize throw it away create criticize throw it away until you get something so refined and perfect as the fucking effects in the thing 82 Yeah. but you know obviously this movie's made on a much uh, shorter prep time, it's also a new day. Uh, CGI, you know, rules so much. So the thing, 2011, was obviously going to have uh, CGI. I think it leans leans harder on CGI than than practicals and and obviously bringing in uh the alien uh probably the alien franchise's most uh, noticeable effects team from the from the sequels Alex Gillis and uh Tom Woodruff being involved with this. So they were doing, you know, on the set practicals, but a lot of it was green screen or or left to be filled in by CGI later. Um, but yeah, I, I never knew that chasm between you know what what uh, effects artists nowadays have to deal with and, and the, the true joy uh, it's got to be for an effects artist to be given a year to, to develop something. Well
1: and that's sort of the second the second story that goes back to the 1982 thing, which is that they had all this time right given to them because the production was shut down. All right for a chunk of time. So even for the 82, they had more time than they probably would have under right. in their circumstances because there was this, you know, weather and whatever related production shutdown yeah. that everyone got a chance to reset, right. which you know, that is a thing that almost no movies have. No movies get this unanticipated, you know, months-long gap to re-examine what they're what they're right. what they've done so far. And, you know, I, and I I want to give the effects Team credit on the 2011 thing for while I don't think it always works, they really did try. Oh, you know, there's a there's a real sense of craft to good chunks of the effect sequences in this movie, even though I'm not sure all of it works. Yeah,
0: well, I gotta say, man, there were a couple times when I was truly, um, and 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 I say this with the utmost reverence for the 1982 film that I was truly grossed out by even a CGI effect. I'm thinking of the guys, uh, a face and body breaking open on the helicopter. Yeah. And, um, even the, the, uh, when, when the, uh, the one guy, gets knocked out and he his his uh like limbs start coming off um and he starts crab walking over to Olsen I forget the guy's uh full name the actor but he kind of like rubs his face onto Olsen and kind of like absorbs and it becomes like putty and both of them kind of like join together I mean that's where you're seeing obviously that's that's the Prequelness thing because we're talking about that that burning thing pile that's in the 1982 film. How did that get there, and why are the faces all weird and and uh, uh, con- contorted and everything? But uh, I did like that that little element of how the, those effects kind of. I wasn't even thinking of how it filled in the prequel part of it, but how well executed that that certain scene was. That was really kind of kind of kind of antsy about it. That was legitimately off putting that yeah. that scene of effects. And
1: that was a great use of CGI. That's something they never could have done.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. In the eighty two yeah.
1: thing. And that's that's where you use um, the effects. And you know, I, I watched that a lot of the my luckily my iTunes purchase of this came with some extras. Nice. And I got to watch some stuff of them, you know, setting people on fire. Right. You know, they really put a lot of effort into trying to have some physical effects. Right. Be a big part of this movie and that's you know, I think that this movie deserves a lot of love for trying really hard, even if it doesn't deserve the res- the credit for trying the right things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I think I think its goals were a little out of whack. Right. Ultimately, right. Um, because this was not a lazy movie. This is not a lazy
0: movie. No, 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 no. I think that it's also kind of, I don't know, like, in tell me if I'm wrong, but even in the 21st century after, you know, TV shows like Lost and, and kind of the popularity of more world cinema, isn't it still kind of atypical for a big Hollywood movie to have such non-English parts, like subtitled parts? Yeah, I, it's really, it's a really curious aspect of this movie that,
1: On one hand, like, the Americans stick out like a sore thumb. Oh, yeah. Because it's clearly just supposed to be a Norwegian movie. And I kind of feel like if this was a straight-up all-Norwegian cast film, it would be really compelling. Yeah. So they have to cram in these Americans. But on the other hand, this is a mostly non-American cast, and they shouldn't have been able to get away with that. Yeah, true. So it's both
0: a plus and a minus. It is true. I mean, you, you you have to make your compromises, I'm guessing. But the fact that the... The producers were able to get the studio on board with having pretty much no-name actors from from American suspe- perspective, and also having such um, uh, large sections. Be uh, I'm just thinking of the opening. It's ballsy just having an opening that's all subtitled.
1: Yeah, I mean the the two actors who are names now are Joel Edgerton, who's really only making a name. Yeah for himself right now. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead, yeah. who is kind of a cult level. Yeah. Name, yeah. You know, and everyone else. Yeah. And, and we, i right. We open up in this like snow cat thing. Right. With a bunch of Norwegians who are, who are talking in subtitles about, you know, bad jokes uh-huh. and yeah. which was, a, which was a, a mostly great opening scene until they fell into the chat. <laughs> sure. The way. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, they were really asking a lot of the audience in, they, in, they in are. making this movie to, to, and of the studio to back them
0: they are because um, the problem with with sequels and prequels honestly honestly it's more probably it's more dependent upon as as a as a thing for for um prequels is that how much of this movie could you see without seeing the movie that it's a prequel to right and that's what sucks I mean watching this movie by itself. I think is so generic and mundane and banal compared to like, you have to have the password to get into the speakeasy with this one. You know what I mean? You need to have seen the thing, but if you have seen the thing 1982, you are not going to enjoy it. Now, if you see, I can imagine that there are people, especially younger kids who see this movie first I'm really interested if they can can differentiate the quality of this if they went backwards. The the way that people you wonder who are fans of the prequels of Star Wars. Yeah, love those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And that's so, the other thing, man. I mean, like, to me, I, I can imagine, I, I have a couple couple friends, a couple people who have been on this podcast before that have talked about it from the perspective of being, you know, a, a Generation Y kid or a kid that's come up in the 2000s. And, uh, you know, I think that often the ones that I, that I talk to at least can at least appreciate the originals for what they are as the kind of jumping off point even if they like the the fluidity and the the um the uh what's the word i'm looking for not the artificiality but the kind of smoothness of cgi effects i mean they're like we've talked about this a couple times the the attunement of the eye to the grain of film versus the smoothness of digital i mean that's kind of the chasm between practical effects and digital effects
1: yeah yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And what they can, whether they, you know, what works, you know, what are, you, what is your eye attuned to? Exactly.
0: Because, to, um, to us, CGI looks horrible.
1: Right. I mean, we're, you know, it's 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 so clean that it, you know, we have this uncanny valley of special effects yeah. that we we fall into. Yeah. Um. So, so Greg, there's one thing I want to say, and I, I said I was going to mention it when we were talking about this movie. And uh, so, who goes there? Joseph Campbell's, yeah. or John Campbell's, excuse me, original story. Why I skimmed it. And the why I skimmed it is though it is conceptually absolutely brilliant, holy god is it terribly written.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Of all the things that I thought when we uh were gonna do this podcast, what was the most controversial thing that you were going to say? That I did not expect it to be that. I you know, it was it's so filled with like
1: Stock macho characters, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and what's funny is is that John is that um John Carpenter leans really hard into that curve, yeah, but in a way that is kind of brilliant. He takes this, I mean, what's funny is one of the things I always loved about John Carpenter's The Thing was that it had all these ridiculous names like McCready yeah. and Gary with two R's, yeah, and, yeah. you know all this shit, and, and most of those names, with the exception of Childs, comes from <laughs> John, you know, John, Car- it comes from the John Car- Campbells. ...original thing. But there's this artificial... ...bullshitty machismo... (laughs) ...behind the original story... I read the first paragraph and I was like, I got to skim this. <laughs> I cannot read this entire novella.
0: Well, you know, like most things that kind of like, uh, I know the world, war of the worlds is a lot better written, but I'll say that a lot of things that you, that you read that are, uh, the things that you read and watch, okay, I'll say that influence the things that you love often are relics of a bygone era. Like that thing probably plays a lot well if you were in 1938 <laughs> <laughs> and and you're not and maybe you're not a reader. Maybe you're also kind of like used to pulp serials that you read in the back of magazines. Well, and, you know, let's remember that John Campbell is was. We
1: don't have the modern science fiction movement without this man. Yeah, like, absolutely. I want to give this guy credit because Amazing Stories is entirely his. Most of the brilliant science fiction minds came through yeah. his magazine. Yeah. This man understood science fiction at a level that he was able to appreciate the Asimovs of of that time and give them a platform. So when I say who goes there has problems in its writing, I do not (laughs) want to knock the Campbell's immense contributions to science fiction. But the dude is a little bit celliery in that he knew (laughs) talent better than he he had as a
0: writer. That's all. That's all Uh, that's the only reason to skim a novella is to come on here and and and, and badmouth a, a giant. <laughs> one of the giants. Next time, of fiction, yeah, next so time I'm we'll be covering I can, I we'll be covering Shakespeare thing. and Hawthorne in the next episode. <laughs> uh, there's one more thing I want to talk about with the thing 2011, and it's it it comes off as kind of a um a really a really trivial thing, but it's becoming something that I've seen. It must be a pattern, something that I've been seeing more and more and more recently. Um, and I I use this as kind of a, uh, a, a litmus test on what's going to be a bad movie. And it's a movie that has a scene in an alien spaceship. I, I'm so glad you decided to talk about the spaceship scene. I, I fucking hate it. it up, so yes. <laughs> Another movie that should have been a companion piece and not such an obvious prequel, Prometheus... Has an alien spaceship uh, inside an alien spaceship scene, which is is a beautiful scene in the way that it's shot, but I think is as uh, fucking dumb as anything that you have seen. Uh, another problem, uh, like like the movie Predator Two ends in an alien spaceship, and it's just right. a fucking like uh, a fog effects scene. Yes. Uh, Man of Steel. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that could be a litmus test for a bad movie. It, it comes early on in the movie too. Uh, I'm sure there are many, many other uh, uh, examples of this. But yeah, no, this, this scene is, in, in the thing, 2011, is just about uh, generic corridors. <laughs> That's really what it is. Yeah, there's a
1: handful of like air ducts too, just to, to, to cap yeah. the whole thing off. You know what's amazing about this, this spaceship scene is, because it lost me too. This movie utterly lost me at the spaceship scene. What's fascinating about it is it is yet another attempt to redo John Carpenter's The Thing, except yeah. by making it a prequel because that is what... Oh, God, I can't remember his name in The Thing, who's basically trying to create a new spaceship for himself. Right,
0: uh, yeah, fucking uh, quick. Oats guy. Yeah, Quaker guy. is and...
1: trying to make a spaceship for himself in the end of that movie. But what's amazing about that scene is that it's this cobbled-together cave Yes. Yeah, you yeah. know, that they go into, and it's it's unsettling because they're turning their... He has turned their land into his land. Yeah. And and so that's unsettling. Because it's the same idea of him turning human bodies right. into alien bodies. So right. it mimics that. Whereas this is just like, let's go out to this weird silver mm-hmm. place where the alien's going to try to get away. And uh, it's, it is such a disaster it's, of it's, a scene.
0: It's a terrible... Like, even with... Even with the supposed original ending, which I think is even more confusing than what we get, um, having any final act take place in such a generic um, uh, setting with such a generic motivation feels just empty. Like, you know, uh, you're going to go into the spacecraft where the alien is, obviously you're going to have a, a a fight with the alien or you're going to come into contact with the alien and there's going to be some scares or there's going to be some some uh, some a uh, chase of some sort and you're going to hide and uh, every single fucking plot point every beat that you would expect that would happen in that final act on that spaceship happens in the thing 2011 there there's nothing there there's no reason
1: to go into that spaceship except that they have a spaceship and modern alien movies yes. need to show the insides yes. of spaceships. And and you know, you made a really good point with the Prometheus thing because there are aspects of this movie that line up with the Prometheus idea of in fact, especially the original ending, which is so Prometheus. Yeah. Like the original like the the thing was something captured, I think, by the aliens on the ship. Yeah. And had escaped, like yeah. just overall, like it, way,
0: it way, 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 way too much bead. information. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And but yeah, th- that spaceship scene was—it never feels like you know if I'm going to get the inside of a spaceship, I want to get culture. Yeah, I want to get—I want to get a sense of an alien people, not right. an alien thing, but an alien
0: people. And right.
1: all we get are silver walls. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Even if you were uh, uh, approaching this from um, what you would expect the final act of an action movie to be. So they find an action setting, whether, you know, any type of action movie, especially the action movies of the 80s and 90s that I love so much. They will find a construction site or they'll find something that they use to the effect to make stunts happen. So there's going to be something that happens. I'm thinking of like Lethal Weapon 3 has a construction site and of course there's going to be a bulldozer and of course someone's going to shoot at the <laughs> bulldozer because it's metal and they got armor-piercing bullets and of course it's going to knock down the structure because there are houses being built there and there's going to be a nail gun used and everything. It's just like taking out the, the page and writing down the gags that we can shoot at the at the construction site. Well, that's the same thing here except the fact that you're picking a fucking Hollywood set or wherever they built this in you know fucking uh, Vango- Vancouver or whatever and they fucking <laughs> film this generic thing you got uh, f- some some greats and some fire and uh, you know what they get there on, on the day and they come up with some. but there's nothing really smart and intelligent that they're using about the setting the setting isn't like informing or creating some <laughs> spectacle it's just fucking empty
1: yeah it is, it's and like I said, I mean, I, I meant it. I was not being hyperbolic when I said that the movie utterly lost me, yeah, at that point, that up to that point, I was not a fan, but I kind of got where they were going, and that was like, oh, here's modern science fiction horror pooping itself into this idea. yeah, you know, like now we've got to get this scene, which would have never taken place in the <laughs> pooping
0: itself into this scene. I like it. <laughs>
1: Um, so yeah, it was big, big disappointment. Very l- big let
0: disappointment. me let me ask you a question. If you want, if you want a bullshit question to end this out on, what happened to Kate? That you know, that's a really
1: awesome question. I I like to think that that she made it out to some other place and never talked about it again, and right. was realized that she was in the middle of a really shitty story and was like, you know what, not telling, that <laughs> and left. But uh, but honestly. I don't know. You know, this is what sucks about the ending of this movie. This this movie ends on that, like, what happened to Kate note, as opposed to the ending of John Carpenter's The Thing, which was like, I don't know. There's something so nihilistic about that well, ending.
0: Well, if you want a, a signifier of how prequely this prequel is, is that we don't have an ending to this movie. We have kate left to a very um ambiguous ending which i guess is in line with what they're aping from the 1982 film but the fucking end of this movie plays during the end credits and all it is is a bridge to the beginning of the thing 1982 a a nonsensical bridge yeah at that, it is like the one thing i wasn't sure
1: about was how is this movie going to make sense of the the helicopter and the shooting at the dog yeah yeah, yeah. And, and what they do is they tag it by on. keeping <laughs> one of the characters they just sort of like ignored for the second half of the film, yeah. Lars. Yeah. And then had someone else, I don't even know who they were. I'm sure <laughs> we were told about them earlier in the movie and I is forgot. It, isn't, it,
0: isn't it great that that helicopter pilot shows up to die? <laughs> yeah, he just kind of
1: shows up and Lars runs out and is like, you gotta get the dog. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie and we just sort of ignore Kate. Yeah. So that we can bridge the movies. And yeah. you're right, it's over the credits. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, is. It's it's such a weird. The, the end of the movie just sort of ends. Like it just sort of right. cuts off, and then we get our bridge to the next movie.
0: That's the, that's the thing. If you want a if you want a signifier of a piece of media, um, using its its existence as a crutch just to fill in gaps to a much better movie, you have a scene like this happen. Yeah. I, I, whenever I see movies that have that, that same type of thing where, you know, it kind of ends, but you know, uh, dot, 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 this is what's <laughs> going to happen afterwards, I, I know that this is just a, a subpar film because of it. And it, it sucks because, you know what, there's nothing that I love more than people, filmmakers that make films that they um, obviously love the source material for. And it sucks when those type of people make a movie that really is just for no reason existing. It just absolutely no point to it existing. I, I get so pissed off when someone creates a piece of media just to tell me why an axe is in a wall. Yeah, and
1: especially when like this. These are not untalented people making this. Movie. No, no. This not. was not. This was not yeah. a. A fault of laziness this was it just was bad bad intent yeah was this movie this movie was a movie of ill intent it was not it, you know if they had a better intent they'd have nailed this
0: you were almost going to say it so i'm going to say it for you the thing 2011 a movie of ill repute there we go <laughs> thank you greg <laughs> where can the people find you eric sipple
1: um, they can find me on uh, Twitter at Salon. That's S-A-L-O-N. You can also find me on my blog at Salon Moyo. It's S A A L O N M U Y O dot com. Um, two things you might want to check out from me. One is my podcast, Making the Scene, which I am examining individual scenes in movies. My first episode was with Greg himself um, on this. And the second thing is, I think this is going to be coming out just as the book comes out. My. Yes. I'm a co-editor on an anthology called The Deli Counter of Justice about a hero who retires it opens up a deli. It is phenomenal, has some amazing stories in
0: it, and it is probably out right now as you're listening to this, and you should check it out. Fucking awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan. Can't wait to read the deli counter. Cannot wait to hear more of Making the Scene, which I have recorded two episodes with you and have had some of the most fun that I've had podcasting. So definitely check out that first episode and, and maybe a, a, another episode coming soon.
1: Yes, definitely, very soon.
0: Eric, thank you so much for joining me on this. Maybe next uh, Halloween we'll talk about other things. How about that?
1: <laughs> I, I'm, all, I'm all in for that. Yes, whatever. This was awesome, though. Thank you for this. This was a very, really fascinating conversation. So very thank good.
0: You. I'm glad. I'm glad that you were able to uh, to to find some interesting uh, influences. With-